Hear that? It's the sound of you catching up on all the latest and greatest fintech news, trends, and updates thanks to Streetworthy, Yield Street's bi-weekly newsletter. Stay in the know with CEO Melinda Mahiri as he takes a closer look at what's happening in the fintech space, then breaks down what each story could mean for investors like you. Give your portfolio the edge it deserves and subscribe to Streetworthy on LinkedIn today. Welcome to The Yield, the official podcast of Yield Street. Every week, we bring you the latest market insights across our asset classes and products from subject matter experts. Our aim is to break the outdated mold of investing and help you add financial fuel to your ambitions through innovative investing products and strategies, typically unavailable to most investors. Realize your next level with The Yield. Subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. The views you are about to hear do not necessarily reflect the views of Yield Street. This podcast is intended to be strictly informational and is not intended to be and should not be construed as a research report, investment advice, or the offer or sale of securities or any investment product. Now, let's get into the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Yield. Before we get started, please be sure to visit yieldstreet.com to learn more about our offerings and sign up to receive the latest investment updates, market insights, and offerings. Also, please be sure to subscribe to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or YouTube. You can leave a review on an Apple Podcasts, and that will help other investors find our show and interact with our fellow guests. Thank you so much for taking the time out of this very hot day, at least in New York City, to join us today in our discussions about the art market. In case we haven't met, I'm Cynthia Sachs, Managing Director at Yield Street and CEO of Athena Art Finance. Today, I'm joined by Amanda Loacano, head of 20th Century Contemporary Art Auctions at Phillips in New York. Welcome to the show, Amanda. Thanks so much for having me. So welcome. Uh, so my, Amanda, before we start, it would be great if you could give the audience a little bit of background on yourself. Mm -hmm. uh, in particular, I was so intrigued to learn recently about your career uh, path from finance uh, at JP Morgan to the art market, and now you're at Phillips Auction House. So yeah, I would love to hear more, and I'm sure the audience would, about your background. Sure. So I studied art history in the UK. At that time when I was graduating, I was really interested in art funds, which were really starting to take off at that time. I felt that I needed some financial exposure and understand how people invest their money, how they think about how they invest their money, how they structure their portfolios. And so I got a job at JP Morgan Asset Management in the Total Return Funds. Mm -hmm. um, and I was there for just over three years. And I loved my experience there. And I learned an incredible amount about how people think about, you know, their financial instruments, how they're structured, you know, investing responsibly. But I also knew that this was not going to be my, my big, you know, career. I was not going to be the star portfolio manager. So um, I went back and did uh, my MA in art history and moved in at, uh, to Christie's in London, where I, in my time there, I had a few different jobs. I started as the researcher for the evening sales. So putting together all the kind of art historical content um, for the lots that were on offer. I then moved into the day sale, which I kind of really consider as the the engine of the art market. That's where you're seeing what real collectors are buying and selling. That's where you're doing your most volume in terms of pricing. And that's really where a lot of your profitability is for the auction house. And then in my final year or so there, 
uh, they were moving uh, into online sales and putting online sales um, into Europe. And so I led the department's um, launch of online sales in Europe. Obviously, I'm not British. So um, I, I had been in um, the UK for over a decade at that point. And when I moved uh, back to New York, a lot of people whom I'd worked with at Christie's earlier had started moving over to Phillips when Ed Dolman had come over in 2014. Mm -hmm. And I was really intrigued with what Phillips' approach was to and, and, they were and putting, came from Christie's, correct? Yep, yep, yep. exactly. There, he had an interlude elsewhere and then, and then moved over to Phillips. And I was just really intrigued with how, you know, Phillips was approaching bringing the art to market, how um, we thought about collectors, and really to kind of build something from scratch in a lot of ways, because the house has gone through many iterations. But this was, under Ed's stewardship, was really going to be focusing the house solely on art and design of the 20th and 21st century. Right. And what I found very appealing about that was that, you know, that's how collectors collect. You are not confined to, you know, specific silos. And a lot of the silos we deal with at the auction house are a function of your finance department. So one sale gets too big. And so they want to split it off to make two sales. And you create these kind of genres, which are kind of, are historically loosely relevant, but it requires then your collector to look at a few different sales. Mm -hmm. And I think increasingly what we're seeing, not just in the art market, but across all markets is that there is a real finite attention span and people just don't have the time to be looking at you know three, four, five different platforms and things like that. So that's, right. uh, that's how I ended up at Phillips. And I've worn a few different hats here um, since I came. But now I head up the evening sale specifically and oversee the auctions generally for the department in New York. Right. And how long have you been there now? I've been here for five years. Wow. Okay. Yep. Making your mark for sure. <laughs> That's great. So uh, just to kick it off, it would be great mm -hmm. to hear your view on kind of everything's reopening now and markets have been open. The art market, mm -hmm. uh, as we all know, has been open and has been transforming but we're now coming out of the pandemic. So things are changing. And, you know, how do you look at this, you know, kind of, uh, kind of rebirthing that's happening and what does that mean for the art market now? Mm -hmm. from your perspective? You know, I think if we go back a, a little bit to March, 2020, that was across all markets, that was an incredibly fraught period. Nobody knew what was coming. And I think for the, um, the art market, generally there was a, this kind of three month period of atrophy where there just was not a lot of volume. People did not know what was gonna to happen to pricing. And so people did not want to do private sales. The art fairs were shut. Um, so you really didn't have those transactions to be able to identify whether it was good time to be selling or not selling. And so I think all the auction houses felt it was incredibly important to put on sales as soon as possible to give the market a kind of barometer check on what was going on. Mm -hmm. And um, a lot and your of sales that were coming up then, right? Like you were already planning for your spring sales. Exactly. And so right? the sales were in May. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the sales were in May. So you had a lot of consignments already locked in at estimates. Right. So what was then going to be very interesting to see was how the market reacted to those estimates. And I think what everybody, so really the biggest issues during COVID were logistical issues. We could not ship. 
It was right. incredibly, you know, there were bottlenecks everywhere. It was difficult to get specialists in front of art. And we are lucky because we are a bit more of a kind of boutique auction house. We have a smaller footprint. We can pivot more quickly. Mm -hmm. And so um, I think what COVID really did was it uh, accelerated some structural changes that were coming in the industry anyway, one of which was the catalog. And, you know, the catalog is a huge line item. Yeah. It's one that takes incredible uh, lift to get off the ground. Amanda, maybe it's you a, can explain the catalog a little bit to the audience. Sure. Um, how, how kind of important that is and the work it takes to basically create this very thick, yeah. printed, beautiful Yeah, it's beautiful. Catalog. It's like, a, right. you know, Titanic. So right. the, the history of the catalog is the catalog used to be like a pamphlet that was, uh, you know, really like not even a lookbook. It just listed what the lots were. If you wanted your work uh, photographed and included in the catalog, like that was a marketing charge. If you wanted it in color, that was a marketing charge. And then as, uh, you know, digital production got, got easier and the sales got bigger, the book got bigger. And right. so the book started expanding. It became this tool to do marketing. So it was not only are you going to be a star in the sale, you're going to have 10 pages in the book. We're going to, you know, and it just kept going right. and going you're and going. Be first in the book versus last in the book. Right. And all of a sudden you end up with this like restoration hardware style doorstop <laughs> that, you know, nobody even wants to look through because by the time you've got through 10 pages, you forgot the lot you were looking at and where you are in the book. So nobody, everybody really wanted to get away from the book, but it's very hard when you have a marketing crutch for your sales team to kind of take tools away. Mm -hmm. without really knowing what tools you're going to give. And so what COVID really did, because you didn't know where anyone was, so where are you shipping this book? And honestly, you didn't know if you were going to get it anywhere anyway because of the bottlenecks, was to really drive the um, innovations to moving content online, which was something that we really embraced starting with that sale in, in uh, July 2020. Right. And so that is something that's here to stay. I think what we were also was really great to see at that time was that people's appetite for art and buying art and engaging with art did not diminish during COVID. Mm -hmm. Clients felt more, you know, had an increased comfort level with engaging with and buying art digitally or mm -hmm. rather from JPEGs only or from your virtual viewing rooms. The auction houses were in a great position because there was less competition generally in the art market because the art fairs were not happening. So there were fewer places to access um, and engage with art. Were you and coordinating with the auction, with, the, uh, with your competitors back then? I mean, it was kind of a very, you know, kind of jarring moment. And, you know, historically, mm -hmm. the spring auctions happen in a way where, you know, sometimes they might happen around the same time, but they're generally not happening like the same day, the same time. Yeah. Generally, it's you know somewhat coordinated so that art market participants can appreciate and you know uh, obviously yep. be involved in all of them. So, so how did you, how did you navigate that? You know, everybody really just did what was best for them, and I and I think the the, the reason I think that really worked is because typically you're trying to coordinate so that for the, for those collectors who are flying in to view the art, there was nowhere to fly into. There were a lot of people weren't, and we did have a viewing that was by appointment only, um, but people weren't traveling. And so you right. didn't have to worry so much about coordinating to hit everybody in 72 hours. And so I think that 
you were able to do what was right for your for your client for both your sellers and your buyers, which was right. a really unique place to be within the schedule. I think what's going to be interesting now coming out of this period is what has stuck and what will will go back to normal. Mm-hmm. I think what has stuck is digital engagement and putting content online and narrating and storytelling in that sphere versus print. I think what is probably going to go back a bit is on the one hand is the desire to see the art in person, which is of course paramount and people would always prefer to see it in person. I think what will stay is people's confidence in buying uh, you know, remotely if, if they have to, if they can't, if they can't come um, to view. But I think what's also gonna happen in November, which is gonna be interesting is there's gonna be a lot more art on the market. So you have both the, um, the, the uh, art fairs reopening in the autumn. So there's gonna be that volume at play, right. but there's also been a lot of pent up property in the auction pipeline with mm-hmm. states who have, you know, were kind of poised to sell heading into COVID and then paused those plans and will now start coming onto the market in November. And so what's interesting, especially at the top level is kind of pacing those top lots so that understanding what's on the market to know, to advise clients about, you know, if you own that major Richter and there's an estate coming on with a a similar major Richter, is it advantageous to go on at the same time and be a counterpoint to that? Or do you want to ride the momentum of that result into the next season? And so those are the kind of conversations that we're always having. So is it is it fair to say that when COVID hit, the market, as you said, paused, that sellers essentially were un, uncomfortable putting their properties up for auction, not knowing evaluations were going to go. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, since then, and I'd love to hear you know your views on valuation. But since then, just generally speaking, right? And I'll let you you know give the specifics. The market has been you know uh, you know unexpectedly strong coming mm-hmm. out of twenty twenty into twenty one, and now property is coming out because valuations have been strong. And maybe you can give us a little bit of you know viewpoint on the sellers and valuations and you know where how they're feeling about the market and and now do you feel as though maybe there'll be too much supply on the market which might temper values a bit you know i think where this kind of will all kind of crest out is where expect sellers expectations are not matched with current market results so there are sellers who do want to capitalize on what they see as momentum in the market but their pricing expectations or you know their sale expectations are not being matched with the comps that have just come out of this most recent sales season. Mm-hmm. And so that's always the push and pull. And I think that June, July period in 2020, when nobody was quite sure what was going to happen with valuations and the sales had very strong performances, that gave collectors confidence to continue conversations into the December, November, December season, which was also a strong season. And now the, you know, again, this latest season has also had very strong results. And we were just looking at our year on year and in both you know, July, 2020 and this most recent uh, sale last week, in the evening sale, we sold 40% of our lots above the high estimate, which I think is a great indicator of demand, but I think it's also a great indicator of pricing discipline and mm-hmm. really being responsible with keeping estimates in a range that is palatable for sellers to continue to participate in the market. Because right. what I will say is that, you know, people are not buying things at any level. 
So it's, it's not, it's not, it's strong. There's great, right. there's great participation, but there is also uh, an understanding of where intrinsic value is and mm -hmm. what, and where people are willing to, you know, push, push levels to. Right. Right. So th there's a, there's a bunch of things I want to unpack in, in what mm -hmm. you just said. One of the topics is around emerging artists, mm -hmm. but I want to kind of save that to, to, we're going to talk about the auctions that Phillips just had. And I want to just save a little bit of that um, because they had such a phenomenal auction with great um, results on the emerging artist side. Um, but, but Amanda, you and I spoke the other day about the primary market versus the secondary market mm -hmm. uh, with regard to emerging and uh, kind of this flipping concept that has gone on in the past and how that's changed. Mm -hmm. I thought that was really interesting. And I thought that would be really, you know, nice for the audience to kind of hear your view on that. Sure. So I think that, you know, one of the kind of positive negative things about auction in contemporary space is what is perceived to be the auction house's responsibility to an artist who is just beginning their career. And so when an artist is just beginning their career, their prices are um, really dictated by their primary market gallery, who is responsible for setting the pricing expectations, but also placing the works. And so with that comes, you know, when you have an artist who's incredibly sought after, the demand for their work at the primary gallery can outstrip the supply. And that is where then the auction house is, comes in to kind of show where that, that demand is. And what the auction house's kind of responsibility is to the primary market gallery, if we're, if we're acting responsibly, is to number one, set that estimate in line with their primary market pricing. Mm -hmm. And number two, to try and not flood the market to meet the demand but to give kind of incremental uh, feeding of the, the chain so that um, it doesn't basically blow up that market. And I right. think the first time that uh, quote unquote flipping, which is kind of buying a work to immediately put into auction for, uh, you know, for profit, like arbitraging that, that buy and sell, really started getting a bad rep in, I would say, 2014. Mm -hmm. And what you would see is works that were made in, 2013 or 2014 being sold in 2013 or 2014. Right. And, um, and that is really tough on a, um, an artist's career because they haven't had enough time to build a collector base, to kind of stabilize their output, to see kind of where their output is going. And, you know, trends move through the market. And by the time like that price goes up and goes down, you know, so what has happened, I think, since then is the, the market has matured in its, in, in its how it's moving, I guess, through these contemporary trends. And I think when you look at, you know, Phillips is always identified as a kind of pioneer in identifying the trends that are happening in the primary market space, those artists who are in demand, where the supply is not meeting the demand and bringing them to market first. And the criteria we're really looking for are artists with um, stable representation by their gallery with a uh, with global demand. And if you look at our front run, which typically the front run is your first 10 lots, and that's where you're setting the cadence of the sale. Our front run of the first five lots, at least, are all from 2018. Mm -hmm. And I think what is um, interesting in that is that 
yes, that's not necessarily a long hold period, but that is longer than where we started from. And it right. has given these artists time to build really sustained demand for their work and allow the, the, the galleries to kind of watch that demand pick up and put, um, you know, put blockers in place to be able to restrict the supply. So galleries will typically, um, for instance, the Amy Sherald show that Hauser and Worth just had, both, uh, she only paints like seven paintings a year, but I believe all of those were placed with institutions. So right. those didn't even come into the private collector market. Right. Um, Singa Samson in the last couple of years, so our lot one, he just got picked up by White Cube for global representation. But in the last two or three years, two years, I believe, his uh, previous gallery um, was putting no resale of five to seven years on his works. Mm -hmm. So the only works that can come out by this artist at this stage are works that were sold prior to 2019. Right. So even though there's a strong result here, you're not necessarily going to get this glut because they've had time to build in their, their safety net. At the same time, though, there are artists who are engaging with both sides of the primary and secondary market. So Amawako Boafo sold directly to many, many collectors. Um, mm -hmm. His works are always coming out on the market. His price points have been sustained. And that's without the gallery kind of really tightly controlling his output. So it really, um, it's an interesting time to be a contemporary artist because it's not so simple of that kind of traditional gallery patronage relationship anymore. There's a right. lot of, there's many ways you can go about it. Is it appropriate to talk, just before we talk about Philip's auction results about NFTs, only, and I bring it up now, only because you know, there's a big difference between the physical art market, primary versus secondary, and, you know, the artist's ability to have some type of revenue or royalty stream in the secondary mm -hmm, market. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And he kind of market solves that problem, you know, from, from the blockchain perspective. So uh, I don't want to go too into NFTs because I didn't want to make this NFT centric, but uh, I'm sure you have a view on this and just, you know, maybe comment on that and what else you're seeing that might be of interest. Well, you know, I think the interesting thing about when the, the NFT, you know, when NFTs really blew up, I guess, in the art world, was there was a lot of conflation between the discussion around digital art, around the technology of what, you know, NFTs can do, right. and cryptocurrency. And people talked about those things all interchangeably, like it's all the same thing. And those are very different drivers of, you know, what's happening in the market. Digital art is not new. Digital art has been around. And so that kind of has its own strengths and weaknesses. As technology changes, you can get stuck with something that is defunct. That's, mm -hmm. you know, we look at CD-ROMs. Those came and went very, very quickly. And then there's the cryptocurrency function, which happens in, you know, that's, that's its own entity and beast okay. and how it works. But I mean, the technology of how an FD NFT can be utilized in the art market, I don't think has been fully, you know, articulated yet. And I think that's where there's the most exciting kind of research and thought, you know, thought leadership to be happening. And so I always felt not educated enough in that space to have a real opinion about whether that's the future or not the future. I think the, I think the technology is the future, its application. I'm not sure where it's going to land yet. Right. Yeah. So, so let's leave it there um, because I do want to talk about Philip's 
spring auctions that just occurred a week ago mm-hmm. or so. Yeah. They were great. Uh, so congratulations on that. Thank you. Yeah, really exciting. And, uh, you know, what was really exciting was to see the emerging artist category do phenomenally well. And mm-hmm. Phillips just great, you know, at marketing those pieces and just putting the right artists up who are in such high demand. And so it would be great if you can give our audience a perspective on the overall results mm-hmm. and the category, the emerging category in particular. Yeah. And, you know, I think that what we were really proud about in the kind of sales we've been putting forward thus far is we really are trying to put forward sales that are commercial and that are a reflection of what collectors are looking for. And that does not necessarily mean they are going to be the highest value sales that you see in any given season. But what we do hope is that they are representative of both critical trends, collector trends. And I think that we've been seeing that year on year with these very high sell-through rates. I mean, last July was a a white glove sale, which means you're 100% sold. This last week was also 100% sold. Our sale in Hong Kong, both evening and day, which is like unheard of to have a 100% sold day sale, were 100% sold. And I think that's just a, a good reflection that we're kind of very tapped into and plugged into what collectors are looking for. And Mm -hmm. what I was particularly proud of actually of this sale was, you know, I think that we've proven ourselves very much so in terms of knowing the trends of those emerging artists and when to bring them to market and at what price point. And there was incredible depth of bidding in in, in all of those lots. But, you know, there there were some some lots in this sale that I consider uh, more, I I called them like the art historical lots, which Mm. are not necessarily, you know, the super flyers today, but they also found good depth of bidding and we made records for some of those. So, you know, Vija Selman's we made a record for. And I think that what that's that's really capturing is that there's a, we're capturing a broader cross-section of the market in these sales that we're curating. And by putting together 20th and 21st century, we're able to create contacts and connections across the canon that are allowing collectors to, you know, have moments of discovery. And I think that's what what drives people to participate in auctions and collecting Mm -hmm. is you have a passion for it and you want to learn more or you want to, you know, see something you've never seen before. And And I think that people have moments of discovery in these sales. Right. And, and do you think that's a function of online um, broadening the audience? Is, is there something there and also just the strength that you're seeing out of Hong Kong? It seems like there's a combination of factors that are really, you know, enabling the strength, you know, 100% self rate multiple times is quite yeah. phenomenal. Um, I mean, I think for sure that an online presence uh, or really a kind of strong digital online presence is critically important because I don't think What I think has also really happened in the last couple of years is there has been a real globalization of the art market. Traditionally, when you would put together auctions at different sale locations, you would talk about paintings as being best for London or best for Hong Kong or best for New York. You know, exactly. As though you're speaking to a regional collector base. And really, I think it was going this way, but something that COVID really dispelled was they don't mm-hmm. care where you're selling it. If right. they're, you know, <laughs> so right. we now find that our New York sales look very similar to our Hong Kong sales. Mm-hmm. And we have 
collectors who bid and buy in both and you know don't care which auction it's in if it's the best piece on the market that week that's where you know they want it so i think that is something that's really definitely um changed yeah well. i think that's great too i mean it's listen it's blurred the lines mm -hmm. uh between geographies or amongst geographies which makes perfect sense because it seems like now there are no times that you know things are closed it's almost right. a 24 7 market you know at every moment which this just kind of proves it out mm -hmm. so so that makes sense so thank you so much for that. So, so with that, I think what we want to do now is take some questions from the audience, if we have them, and I'm going to ask Joe to chime in, who's helping us uh, with this to see if there's any that we can hopefully field. Yep. So we did get one question and it is, will prices continue to rise for blue chip pieces? Mm -hmm. And I think they may be referencing some of the record sales we've been seeing over the last uh, couple months. You know, I think that the function of blue chip is that it will hold its value. And I think that what has been, I think what you have seen actually with a lot of blue chip is perhaps it's, it's rise has been a little bit slower in the last few years as collectors have been engaged in a more diverse offering of art. So whether that's kind of re-evaluating the canon and you can see that with, you know, abstract expressionists with moving more into a discovery or rediscovery of women artists in that movement. So you see Joan Mitchell's prices moving up, Helen Frankenthaler's prices moving up. You know, that's not to say that Jackson Pollock or Clifford Still are no longer holding their value, but while there's a refocus going on and a recalibration, there might be a little bit less focus on them, but they are still titans of 20th century art and that's not going to change. So I think that while things get recalibrated, there might be a pause in some of the you know, big, big values going up for those older, uh, there's more traditional names. Um, but I think what you will see in terms of valuations is a lot of the top end of the market is driven by guarantees, which is yeah. basically um, a third, typically a third party, it can be the house, putting in a bid for a work before the auction happens. And on the one hand, traditional kind of auction buyers have always poo-pooed guarantees because they feel they are not a real representation of what's going on in the auction market. It should be what happens on the day. But at the same time, that is a real bid. That is a real buyer who is willing to pay a real seller that price on, on a day. And so what you do see is that those ceilings for a lot of this work, of this art is are put in before sale happens. And so that's where you can really start seeing if there is a lot of momentum or confidence in the market, because you will find those matches coming in into the auction before, you know, before you even go live. And if you can't make that match, then some, you know, some people prefer to hold sometimes. Right. Um, so I think that's where you're, that's where you can watch the indication of if things are continuing to rise at the blue chip level. Yeah. Okay. So I don't think we have any more questions. So Amanda, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank it was so interesting. It was wonderful having you on the show. And uh, please visit yieldstreet.com to learn more about our offerings. And if you're an art collector or investor and looking to leverage your art, please be sure to email me at csacks at yieldstreet.com. And see you all in two weeks for our next live show on July 14th. Our CTO, Rishi uh, Dixit, will be interviewing Craig Lewis, founder and CEO of Gig Wage. 
uh, a tech company enabling the world's innovation to instantly pay 1099 workers with more control, flexibility, and scale. And thank you. And we will see you all again soon. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of The Yield. For the latest updates on the alternative investing space, go to yieldstreet.com. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. If you enjoyed the show, feel free to leave a review on Apple Podcasts as this will help other investors like yourself find our show. If you have any questions, please visit us at yieldstreet.com. Thanks again for listening and see you next week. The Yield Street podcast you just heard only reflects the opinions of the host, who is an associated person of Yield Street and does not necessarily reflect the views of Yield Street or any of its affiliates or other associates. The podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be and should not be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell any security and is not an offer or sale of any securities or investment product. The podcast is also not a research report and is not intended to be and should not be construed as investment advice. Support for this podcast comes from Yield Street. Trying to time the stock market can lead to regret. At Yield Street, our alternative investments are designed to create predictable secondary income streams, providing you with tools to help put your money to work immediately. These investments in asset classes like art, real estate, and legal finance typically have low correlation with the stock market and target annual yields up to 7 to 10%. Welcome to the next generation of investing. Welcome to Yield Street. Sign up today at yieldstreet.com.